Section 46 The Critique of Pure Reason by Immanuel Kant Transcendental Doctrine of Method Chapter 2 The Canon of Pure Reason Section 3 Of Opinion, Knowledge, and Belief This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Carl Manchester, 2007. The Critique of Pure Reason by Immanuel Kant. Book 2, Chapter 3, Section 3. Of Opinion, Knowledge and Belief. The holding of a thing to be true is a phenomenon in our understanding which may rest upon objective grounds, but requires also subjective causes in the mind of the person judging. If a judgment is valid for every rational being, then its ground is objectively sufficient, and it is termed a conviction. If, on the other hand, it has its ground in the particular character of the subject, it is termed a persuasion. Persuasion is a mere illusion, the ground of the judgment which lies solely in the subject being regarded as objective. Hence a judgment of this kind has only private validity, it is only valid for the individual who judges, and the holding of a thing to be true in this way cannot be communicated. But truth depends upon agreement with the object, and consequently the judgments of all understandings, if true, must be in agreement with each other, consentientia unitertio consentient inter se. Conviction may, therefore, be distinguished from an external point of view, from persuasion, by the possibility of communicating it, and by showing its validity for the reason of every man. For in this case, the presumption, at least, arises that the agreement of all judgments with each other, in spite of the different characters of individuals, rests upon the common ground of the agreement of each with the object, and thus the correctness of the judgment is established. Persuasion, accordingly, cannot be subjectively distinguished from conviction, that is, so long as the subject views its judgment simply as a phenomenon of its own mind. But if we inquire whether the grounds of our judgment, which are valid for us, produce the same effect on the reason of others as on our own, we have then the means, though only subjective means, not, indeed, of producing conviction, but of detecting the merely private validity of the judgment, in other words, of discovering that there is in it the element of mere persuasion. If we can, in addition to this, develop the subjective causes of the judgment, which we have taken for its objective grounds, and thus explain the deceptive judgment as a phenomenon in our mind, apart altogether from the objective character of the object, we can then expose the illusion and need be no longer deceived by it, although, if its subjective cause lies in our nature, we cannot hope altogether to escape its influence. I can only maintain, that is, affirm as necessarily valid for every one, that which produces conviction. Persuasion I may keep for myself, if it is agreeable to me, but I cannot, and ought not, to attempt to impose it as binding upon others. Holding for true, or the subjective validity of a judgment in relation to conviction, which is, at the same time, objectively valid, has the three following degrees. Opinion, belief, and knowledge. Opinion is a consciously insufficient judgment, 
subjectively as well as objectively. Belief is subjectively sufficient, but is recognised as being objectively insufficient. Knowledge is both subjectively and objectively sufficient. Subjective sufficiency is termed conviction for myself. Objective sufficiency is termed certainty for all. I need not dwell longer on the explanation of such simple conceptions. I must never venture to be of opinion without knowing something, at least, by which my judgment, in itself merely problematical, is brought into connection with the truth, which connection, although not perfect, is still something more than an arbitrary fiction. Moreover, the law of such a connection must be certain. For if, in relation to this law, I have nothing more than opinion, my judgment is but a play of the imagination, without the least relation to truth. In the judgments of pure reason, opinion has no place. For as they do not rest on empirical grounds, and as the sphere of pure reason is that of necessary truth and a priori cognition, the principle of connection in it requires universality and necessity, and consequently perfect certainty, otherwise we should have no guide to the truth at all. Hence it is absurd to have an opinion in pure mathematics. We must know or abstain from forming a judgment altogether. The case is the same with the maxims of morality, for we must not hazard an action on the mere opinion that it is allowed, but we must know it to be so. In the transcendental sphere of reason, on the other hand, the term opinion is too weak, while the word knowledge is too strong. From the merely speculative point of view, therefore, we cannot form a judgment at all, for the subjective grounds of a judgment, such as produce belief, cannot be admitted in speculative inquiries, inasmuch as they cannot stand without empirical support, and are incapable of being communicated to others in equal measure. But it is only from the practical point of view that a theoretically insufficient judgment can be termed belief. Now the practical reference is either to skill or to morality, to the former when the end proposed is arbitrary and accidental, to the latter when it is absolutely necessary. If we propose to ourselves any end whatever, the conditions of its attainment are hypothetically necessary. The necessity is subjectively but still only comparatively sufficient, if I am acquainted with no other conditions under which the end can be attained. On the other hand, it is sufficient absolutely and for everyone, if I know for certain that no one can be acquainted with any other conditions under which the attainment of the proposed end would be possible. In the former case, my supposition, my judgment with regard to certain conditions, is a merely accidental belief. In the latter, it is a necessary belief. The physician may pursue some course in the case of a patient who is in danger, but is ignorant of the nature of the disease. He observes the symptoms, and concludes, according to the best of his judgment, that it is a case of phthisis. His belief is, even in his own judgment, only contingent. Another man might perhaps come nearer the truth. Such a belief, contingent indeed, but still forming the ground of the actual use of means for the attainment of certain ends, I term pragmatical belief. 
The usual test whether that which anyone maintains is merely his persuasion or his subjective conviction, at least, that is, his firm belief, is a bet. It frequently happens that a man delivers his opinions with so much boldness and assurance that he appears to be under no apprehension as to the possibility of his being in error. The offer of a bet startles him and makes him pause. Sometimes it turns out that his persuasion may be valued at a ducat, but not at ten, for he does not hesitate, perhaps, to venture a ducat, but if it is proposed to stake ten, he immediately becomes aware of the possibility of his being mistaken, a possibility which has hitherto escaped his observation. If we imagine to ourselves that we have to stake the happiness of our whole life on the truth of any proposition, our judgment drops its air of triumph, and we take the alarm and discover the actual strength of our belief. Thus pragmatical belief has degrees, varying in proportion to the interests at stake. Now, in cases where we cannot enter upon any course of action in reference to some object, and where, accordingly, our judgment is purely theoretical, we can still represent to ourselves, in thought, the possibility of a course of action, for which we suppose that we have sufficient grounds, if any means existed, of ascertaining the truth of the matter. Thus we find in purely theoretical judgments an analogon of practical judgments, to which the word belief may properly be applied, and which we may term doctrinal belief. I should not hesitate to stake my all on the truth of the proposition, if there were any possibility of bringing it to the test of experience, that at least some one of the planets which we see is inhabited. Hence I say that I have not merely the opinion, but the strong belief on the correctness of which I would stake even many of the advantages of life, that there are inhabitants in other worlds. Now we must admit that the doctrine of the existence of God belongs to doctrinal belief. For, although in respect to the theoretical cognition of the universe, I do not require to form any theory which necessarily involves this idea as the condition of my explanation of the phenomena which the universe presents, but, on the contrary, am rather bound so to use my reason, as if everything were mere nature. Still, teleological unity is so important a condition of the application of my reason to nature, that it is impossible for me to ignore it, especially since, in addition to these considerations, abundant examples of it are supplied by experience. But the sole condition, so far as my knowledge extends, under which this unity can be my guide in the investigation of nature, is the assumption that a supreme intelligence has ordered all things according to the wisest ends. Consequently, the hypothesis of a wise author of the universe is necessary for my guidance in the investigation of nature, is the sole condition under which I can fulfil an end which is contingent indeed, but by no means unimportant. Moreover, since the result of my attempts so frequently confirms the unity of this assumption, and since nothing decisive can be adduced against it, it follows that it would be saying far too little to term my judgment, in this case, a mere opinion, and that, even in this theoretical connection, I may assert that I firmly believe in God. Still, if we use words strictly, this must not be called a practical but a doctrinal belief which the theology of nature, 
physico-theology, must also produce in my mind. In the wisdom of a supreme being, and in the shortness of life, so inadequate to the development of the glorious powers of human nature, we may find equally sufficient grounds for a doctrinal belief in the future life of the human soul. The expression of belief is, in such cases, an expression of modesty, from the objective point of view, but, at the same time, of firm confidence, from the subjective. If I should venture to term this merely theoretical judgment, even so much as a hypothesis which I am entitled to assume, a more complete conception with regard to another world and to the cause of the world, might then be justly required of me than I am, in reality, able to give. For, if I assume anything, even as a mere hypothesis, I must, at least, know so much of the properties of such a being as will enable me not to form the conception, but to imagine the existence of it. But the word belief refers only to the guidance which an idea gives me, and to its subjective influence on the conduct of my reason, which forces me to hold it fast, though I may not be in a position to give a speculative account of it. But mere doctrinal belief is to some extent wanting in stability. We often quit our hold of it, in consequence of the difficulties which occur in speculation, though in the end we inevitably return to it again. It is quite otherwise with moral belief. For in this sphere action is absolutely necessary, that is, I must act in obedience with the moral law in all points. The end is here incontrovertibly established, and there is only one condition possible, according to the best of my perception, under which this end can harmonise with all other ends, and so have practical validity, namely, the existence of a God and of a future world. I know also, to a certainty, that no one can be acquainted with any other conditions which conduct to the same unity of ends under the moral law. But since the moral precept is, at the same time, my maxim, as reason requires that it should be, I am irresistibly constrained to believe in the existence of God and in a future life. And I am sure that nothing can make me waver in this belief, since I should thereby overthrow my moral maxims, the renunciation of which would render me hateful in my own eyes. Thus, while all the ambitious attempts of reason to penetrate beyond the limits of experience end in disappointment, there is still enough left to satisfy us in a practical point of view. No one, it is true, will be able to boast that he knows that there is a God and a future life, for, if he knows this, he is just the man whom I have long wished to find. All knowledge regarding an object of mere reason can be communicated, and I should thus be enabled to hope that my own knowledge would receive this wonderful extension through the instrumentality of his instruction. No, my conviction is not logical, but moral certainty, and since it rests on subjective grounds of the moral sentiment, I must not even say it is morally certain that there is a God, etc., but I am morally certain, that is, my belief in God and in another world is so interwoven with my moral nature that I am under as little apprehension of having the former torn from me as of losing the latter. The only point in this argument that may appear open to suspicion is that this rational belief 
presupposes the existence of moral sentiments. If we give up this assumption, and take a man who is entirely indifferent with regard to moral laws, the question which reason proposes becomes then merely a problem for speculation, and may, indeed, be supported by strong grounds from analogy, but not by such as will compel the most obstinate scepticism to give way. Footnote. The human mind, as I believe every rational being must of necessity do, takes a natural interest in morality, although this interest is not undivided, and may not be practically in preponderance. If you strengthen and increase it, you will find the reason become docile, more enlightened, and more capable of uniting the speculative interest with the practical. But if you do not take care at the outset, or at least midway, to make men good, you will never force them into an honest belief. End footnote. But in these questions no man is free from all interest. For though the want of good sentiments may place him beyond the influence of moral interests, still even in this case, enough may be left to make him fear the existence of God and a future life. For he cannot pretend to any certainty of the non-existence of God and of a future life, unless, since it could only be proved by mere reason, and therefore apodeictically, he is prepared to establish the impossibility of both, which certainly no reasonable man would undertake to do. This would be a negative belief, which could not, indeed, produce morality and good sentiments, but still could produce an analogon of these, by operating as a powerful restraint on the outbreak of evil dispositions. But, it will be said, is this all that pure reason can effect in opening up prospects beyond the limits of experience? Nothing more than two articles of belief? Common sense could have done as much as this, without taking the philosophers to counsel in the matter. I shall not here eulogise philosophy for the benefits which the laborious efforts of its criticism have conferred on human reason, even granting that its merit should turn out in the end to be only negative. For on this point, something more will be said in the next section. But, I ask, do you require that that knowledge which concerns all men should transcend the common understanding, and should only be revealed to you by philosophers? The very circumstance which has called forth your censure is the best confirmation of the correctness of our previous assertions, since it discloses what could not have been foreseen, that nature is not chargeable with any partial distribution of her gifts in those matters which concern all men without distinction, and that, in respect to the essential ends of human nature, we cannot advance further, with the help of the highest philosophy, than under the guidance which nature has vouchsafed to the meanest understanding. End of section 3